1: This episode was sponsored by Girls Can Crate, a subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. Real women make the best heroes, and every month they deliver them to your front door.
2: Hi, Olivia. Hi, Katie. How many common phrases about love can you think of? Oh, uh, love is all we need. Love is a many splendored thing all you need is love love lifts us up where we belong now i'm just quoting <laughs> that movie well you're just you're just singing all the songs i'm just now. singing all the songs yeah. from my
1: <laughs> love conquers all yes love love is blind love is blind love love of country love of country <laughs> brotherly love yeah there are so many different kinds of love Well, arguably, the fault is in our language. We have one word for all of these different relationships. Yeah. There's, like, there's protective love, you know. There's affectionate sibling love. There's passionate love at first sight love. Mm. There's even, like, absent love or the lack of love. Yeah. This is where English really fails us. Yeah. Yeah. What a strange thing that we just used this one umbrella term and said all those things that i can love comic books and love my child (laughs) yeah exactly one word for basically a relationship with someone or something Mm -hmm. we call it love affectionate feeling there's love that smothers yeah love that elevates forbidden love there's love through letters do we even have a word for that you know like long distance love yeah yeah
2: then there's like true friendship. My favorite British mystery th- show was one called Mother Love, oh. with Diana Rigg playing like a really psychotic, smothery mother who mother? literally smothers oh. people in the end.
1: Literally smothers? Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. <laughs> My favorite show growing up was Eerie Indiana. <gasps> you know that kid's show?
2: And they put him in the Tupperware? Yeah, there
1: is a smothering mother who put her children in Tupperware every night so they would never grow up.
2: (laughs) I think about that show all the time. (laughs) Me too. For
1: some reason, that just really stuck with me. (laughs) So, I call this episode, What We Do for Love, Mm. and I'm going to tell you about Dorothy Osborne who lived 400 years ago, Mm. and her story has three kinds of love in it. First, absent love or lack of love. Oh. Second, smothering love. And third, forbidden love. (gasps) How will she survive this? Oh, no. Is this another sad one? (laughs) We need to find a happy story. Well, don't worry. It has a happy ending. Oh. Phew.
2: I'm Katie Nelson. And I'm Olivia Mickle and this is what's her name fascinating women you've never heard of
1: on the banks of the river avon in england on a gorgeous warm sunny day i sat with professor bernard cap
3: okay i'm bernard cap i'm a professor of history at warwick university in england where i've been now for 50 years <laughs>
1: Does it feel like 50 years? It does. It
3: does?
1: (laughs) He told me about Dorothy Osborne who's remarkable for her rare and very witty and personable letters that she wrote in the 1600s.
3: She's not a major historical figure in the sense of doing great deeds but she's fascinating as one of the people you can really get to know through letters and the letters reflect the time she's living in the Civil War era but they also show a lot about family relationships and, and romance and love and marriage and all these things that have a, a timeless quality. She's got a, a very sharp eye and a nice turn of phrase. In some ways, she sometimes sounds like Jane Austen, although she's 150 years earlier than oh. Jane Austen. But the, the same kind of social observation and a w- wonderful sharp phrase that really captures somebody just in a few words. In that way, she sounds almost m- much more modern. Than most people in the mid 17th centuries.
1: Dorothy Osborne is a lover of books and ideas. So, of course, she's our kind of lady. Yeah. And she's really bright. She's living the life. She's got money. She has a grand house called Chicksand. It's an old priory. <laughs> and it's actually still there, which is pretty cool. Ooh, cool. We'll post a picture. But, oh, poor Dorothy Osborne, she's desperately lonely.
3: She's desperately lonely. There's no one around for, for miles Well, I mean, of the same social status. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the few gentry and squires who might be 10 miles away, they can visit occasionally, but they don't have shared interest. They're only interested in well, hunting and hawking and stuff of that sort. And mm-hmm. she, she wants to talk about books and music and culture and stuff.
1: Her mother is gone. Her mother has died. Her father is very frail and aloof. He's, I mean, the impression I get is he's basically a broken person. Mm. He was on the wrong side of the English Civil War. Do you remember the English Civil War where they chopped off Charles I's head? Right. And, and all that? Margaret Cavendish had to run. Yeah. And Dorothy Osborne's parents were on the same side as Margaret Cavendish. Mm. So they were kind of ruined by it. So he's a broken person. He's absent all the time. He's just a frail, sickly person, mm. kind of waiting to die. So she has to take on the role of Lady of the House. And housekeeping is not what she dreams of.
3: There's one famous episode. It's, it's a, probably the most quoted passage in all the letters, where she's out um, in the parkland, I suppose, or on the estate. And she sees a, a group of local dairy maids just keeping an eye on the, the cows and the sheep while they're grazing during the day, mm-hmm. sitting under a tree, chatting, singing, singing ballads, pop songs. And she says, these girls don't know it, but they're the happiest people on earth.
0: <laughs>
3: you know, feeling that her life, although there's, yeah. you know, there's, it's a life of privilege, there's a, there's a big downside to the, the isolation, wow. the expectations.
1: Her oldest brother, who will inherit the house, and all the money. He's not caring and loving. He doesn't seem to have any kind of relationship with his younger siblings. (laughs) But her other brother, Henry, he cares about her greatly. A little too greatly. Uh Uh-oh. Maybe a lot too greatly.
3: Oh, no. When when the letters start, she's in her mid-twenties. She's still single. Brother Henry is about nearly 10 years older. He's still single. And it's the relationship between the two of them, as well as between Dorothy and the man she's fallen in love with, oh. that make this the fascinating triangle. Ah. And they are, they're siblings. They are, apparently they have been previously really, really close. Henry is the only brother living in the house, but there's a, a much older brother who's already married and living a long way away, who would eventually inherit the house and all the estate mm-hmm. when aged father dies. Oh. Which means that both Henry and Dorothy will probably be homeless be pushed out so Henry's line is if you marry a man who's really uh, soft on you will let you do whatever you like, I could come and live in your house once you're married for free and have a nice uh, nice setup for the rest of my days. <laughs> He's still in many ways emotionally hooked on her. It's, it's not quite incestuous, but it's not far off. He's, he's got a, it's, it's much closer than the normal brother-sister relationship. So they have this relationship that is sometimes really intimate, and then they have blazing rows. Uh, then they don't speak for days on end. They're living in the same house, having dinner together in total silence. And after they have their big rows, there's then really emotional makeup sessions mm. um he, he you know he apologizes he buys her expensive presents uh, when he when he's away he's in london sometimes um, he sends her presents writes her letters and they, they don't survive but they're clearly quite passionate ones because and she says my brother henry writes letters that are so passionate and if, if a stranger came across them they would think they were letters from a lover not from a brother So, you know, it's it's not incestuous, but you can see there's a there's a dimension Uh of of that really close bond there.
1: As she comes of age, she meets someone and it's love at first sight. William Temple. Isn't that a great name? That is a great name. Instant connection and He is well off. I mean, he's from kind of a well-to-do family. So it seems like it would be a good match. But no, Henry, her brother, he's never going to let that happen. Mm. But Dorothy Osborne and William Temple, they stayed in touch. They wrote each other secret letters. And they had to be really sneaky about it. She would send her letters to him by one of her maids Mm. who had to, like, sneak it out of the house. And it's all very clandestine. And those letters to each other survive. Well, half of the letters survive. And they tell the story of this couple who secretly loved each other.
2: Wow. Uh,
3: We've got something like 75 letters from Dorothy. He sends the same number back, but she read them and then burnt them all. She didn't want him to know about this correspondence.
0: Letter 12. Sir. The truth is, I cannot deny but that I have been very careless of myself. But, alas, who would have been other? I never thought my life worth my care, whilst nobody was concerned in it but myself. Now I shall look upon it as something that you would not lose, and therefore shall endeavour to keep it for you. But then you must return my kindness with the same care of a life that's much dearer to me.' I shall not be so unreasonable as to desire that, for my satisfaction, you should deny yourself a recreation that is pleasing to you, and very innocent, sure, but I cannot consent you should disorder yourself with it. And yet, with all my gravity, I could not but laugh at your encounter in the park, though I was not pleased that you should leave a fair lady and go lie upon the cold ground, that is full as bad as overheating yourself at tennis.' and therefore remember it is one of the things you are forbidden. He may be confident I can never think of disposing myself without my father's consent. Tis my duty, from which nothing can ever tempt me, nor could you like it in me if I should do otherwise. T'would make me unworthy of your esteem. But if ever that may be obtained, or I left free, and you in the same condition, all the advantages of fortune or person imaginable met together in one man should not be preferred before you. I think I cannot leave you better than with this assurance. Tis very late. Good night to you. There need be no excuse for the conclusion of your letter. Nothing can please me better. Once more, good night. I am half in a dream already. Your faithful friend and servant, Dorothy Osborne.
1: Henry sets about finding her a suitable match, one that he personally approves of, and he has some pretty weird ideas about what a good match for her would be.
3: He tells her that, this is Henry, the brother, tells her that the ideal husband would be a really rich man who is passionate about her, but who she doesn't care for much. And then he says, this is because, in that kind of relationship, you could manipulate him. You could always get your way on everything. (laughs) You you could get him to do whatever you want. right. Uh, That's a kind of power. Yeah, it's a kind of power. And she thinks that that doesn't sound a very happy prospect, but he thinks that's the way to do things. (laughs) So the the, the heart of the story is this triangular relationship with Brother Henry trying to squash or finish off um, the secret courtship that's going on Mm. and uh, Dorothy and William Temple, the lover, trying to keep it going secretly through this correspondence. Um, Dor- Dorothy's line is fairly straightforward. She knows brother disapproves, and father would probably disapprove. He- he's really out of the picture. He's upstairs in bed, you know, <laughs> bedridden. Oh. Her-, her line is, "If I can convince them how serious I am about this relationship, eventually they will relent and let me marry uh, William." Okay. Henry's position is-, is much more complicated, and in a way, it's the more interesting one. He and Dorothy had been very, very close as brother-sister relationship. And he resents this outsider coming onto the scene. Um, He wants to see her married. He's got some weird ideas about marriage though from our perspective. He keeps telling her marriage is not about love, marriage is about money. You should not marry for love. It never works out he says. (laughs) (laughs) So he's trying to squash or stamp out that uh, courtship and he keeps bringing along other men who he thinks would be more suitable and takes her off to London to be introduced to other men he thinks would be more suitable. So some of the letters are her anecdotes to William about these men she's been sort of forced on and what she thinks of them and how absurd they are and ridiculous they are and boring they are. <laughs> one, of them, one of them, she said, uh, is only in, uh, can only talk about dogs and horses and she's a bit of an intellectual. She likes reading and uh, culture and things. So she's very dismissive and, and, and very funny sometimes about all these other men. <laughs>
1: One after another, they come and go. They try to impress, and she says no.
3: All these prospective suitors that Henry finds to parade, um, they're all gentry, some are quite grand. One of two surprising ones, one was actually the younger son of Oliver Cromwell. And that's a a big puzzle, because this is a staunchly royalist family, and they think Oliver Cromwell is a monster so why the hell yes uh, unless it's henry being really pragmatic thinking well the, the cromwells are going to be here forever now they are the, they're all power brokers so maybe it might be a good move to have somebody close to the center she, she respected henry cromwell she didn't want to marry him but she you know thought he was a serious person and she gets him to send her a of some uh, greyhounds or hounds of some sort from ireland he's an Ireland at the time but then when, one of the other suitors who's presented is, um, who? a very, very distant relation, who eventually becomes chief minister under Charles II in the 1670s. So it's, it's, wow. c- it's quite a quite list a of yes. possible things. But some of the other, she <laughs> says, they're, they're completely thick and gormless, and they can only talk about horses and dogs.
1: Henry thinks he can win at this game. She'll eventually wear down, he thinks. Soon enough, one of these guys will make her swoon. It's basically just a game, a test of endurance.
3: Hmm. It's about two years and there's a constant flow of, of suitors, some in the house in Bedfordshire where they live and some in London where she's taken to, to meet them. And you know, he says if, if, he do, if she does marry somebody he approves of, you know, he'll be the happiest man ever and he'll um, commemorate that anniversary every day for the rest of his life but if she goes ahead with marrying William Temple then he'll turn his back on her not out of anger and and vengeance but because he couldn't bear to see her ruined and destroy herself so you get these glimpses of real emotion coming across even there well he's either emotionally very volatile or (laughs) there's a romantic strand there as well perhaps
1: she writes to William Temple all about it. So she's like, well, I met a suitor today, and here's why he's terrible. And here's how ugly this one was, and stuff like that.
3: One occasion, he recognizes that she's serious-minded and rather bookish sort of person. So he, he finds a gentleman who is actually very academic and intellectual and very serious and sober, who he thinks might suit. Hmm. But she says, no, no, he's a, he's a pompous, stuck-up and <laughs> boring character. <laughs> he's called Justinian Isham, and she talk, refers to him as the Emperor Justinian, after the Roman Emperor Justinian. Okay. So, if I was married after him, she said, he was a middle-aged widower with um, teenage children. She says, and within a few weeks, she and the two daughters would rise up in rebellion <laughs> against this evil emperor. <laughs>
1: Years later, they're still playing this game oh, of man. chicken. Or, or maybe it's a game of last man standing. <laughs> <laughs> Our brother growing up he used to instigate this game called patience test did he ever do that to you
2: (laughs) no you were sort of on the receiving end of a lot of his weirder
1: (laughs) (laughs) and he would just walk up to you and point at your forehead with his forefinger Uh, like not actually touch your forehead but just point at it and say patience test and the test was how long can you stand to have him pointing at your forehead (laughs) right without swatting his hand away right And for some reason it always worked As soon as he did it I was like I'm going to bear down I'm going to endure this
2: I will win this patience test Which as we know from our brother You're never going to last longer At any patience
1: related item It would stretch on for like half a day Oh my goodness So this is like their version of patience test Wow And she gets tired of it
3: And she says I'm giving up, I'll abandon this courtship and he's he keeps a diary so we've got the diary as well as her letters oh. so we've got two dimensions on this and he's overjoyed a great you know it's paid off at long last and William Temple comes on his way to Ireland to say a final farewell and you know he's really downhearted. but he stays for a couple of days and in those couple of days It goes through a complete U-turn. She changes her mind. I'm not going to call it off. I'll only stay with you. We will marry. I'll get engaged officially as of now, but secretly. It's really like a romantic novel, isn't it?
1: Yes, exactly. They make a pact. They swear to each other. We will never give up.
3: Aww. She doesn't tell them. Henry that she's done this reverse, so there's a real deceit going on for a while. Wow. He thinks he's won. <laughs> she knows he hasn't.
1: Years go by and then finally the opportunity arrived.
3: And then the father dies the day of the funeral, she tells Henry. I'm now engaged to William Temple. There is no way out of it. Then it's Henry, who eventually is worn down and gives up.
1: And she lived happily ever at, oh wait, hang on. No, before they actually had a chance to get married. They're engaged. They're planning the wedding. She caught smallpox.
2: Oh, come on.
1: She's laying in bed, barely clinging to life. On the brink of the life she dreamed of for years. Can love conquer smallpox? In her case, yes. Yay! (laughs) And when she's recovered, they don't bother with... You know, preparations and the 17th century version of a prenup contracts. Wow. They just get married on Christmas Day in 1654.
0: Yay!
2: Let's pause for a moment to thank our sponsor, Girls Can Crate. Every month, Girls Can Crate chooses a real-life hero and sends everything that you'll need for your child to learn about this brand new role model. You'll get a 32-page activity book, STEM activities, science experiments, arts, crafts, costumes to help your child learn new ways of thinking about being a girl. Do you remember as a kid how
1: exciting it was to get something in the mail? Oh man, yes. It was like the zenith of my existence when I yep. got something in the mail, even if it was just a little letter. Yep. But I remember our grandparents got us magazine subscriptions, yeah. and when those arrived, it was like, yep. the universe was mine. The coolest thing ever just came to me with my name on it in yep. the mail. Go to girlscancrate, and use the coupon code HERNAME, all one word, to get 20% off your first month's crate.
3: This was a really strange period where you were not allowed, it was against the law to get married in church by clergymen. (laughs) This is a weird aspect of the Puritan revolution, I suppose, when they said uh, marriage is not really a sacrament, it's not really religious at all, therefore you get married by a magistrate, a secular magistrate. There's no no religious service, which they don't like because they're royalists, but they do it anyway. So they do get married, very privately.
1: That is so weird. I know. It's so extreme. Do you remember the kind of extreme guy who took over after they killed Charles I? Cromwell? Cromwell. Yeah, exactly. I hate that dude. It's this brief period where there's a Puritan government and they're doing things like banning Christmas and, you know, dancing and stuff like that. They basically abided by a policy. If it's not explicitly stated in the Bible, it's not allowed. She's totally defying Henry, her brother, whose iron grip on her she has endured for her whole life. But she still wants him there. She still wants his blessing.
3: She still wants Brother Henry to be involved in marriage negotiations. And William Temple says, "Why would you want this? You know he's uh, he's blocked you, he's tried to ruin you, he's spread gossip about how you're now ruined. You know you, you've thrown yourself away on this terrible evil man. And yet you still want him to be involved. And she says, "Well, yeah, yes." Despite everything, you know, he's still my brother, I still love him, sort of. And, and it, it's the normal way of doing things, and it would look really odd if your brother, close family, was not involved in these things. So she's got these different strands, strings, pulling in opposite directions all the way through the story. There are a lot of young women, or young men too for that matter, who fell in love and wanted to marry the person they loved and then found parents were trying to block it. And quite often, the parents were successful, the parents did manage to block it, because the parents could say things like, if you defy me and go off and marry whoever it is, I will disinherit you, mm. you'll get no dowry. And then so you, you have this dilemma, do I marry for love, but then we're destitute? Yeah. What do we live on? Or do you go along with what the family wants? Yeah. Um, and there are lots of examples of both, but more often people do back down and they fall into line with what parents are saying. Sometimes women who elope, or run off in mm-hmm. marriage in defiance and angry father cuts them off, disinherits them. Dramatic downward mobility and um, the problem for them is that they've been brought up in these sort of genteel houses with servants and being waited on. And, suddenly find it's no longer <laughs> the mm. money is no longer there <laughs> <laughs> <And they don't laughs> what have do you the do skills, they don't do have them? a skill that's right yeah <laughs> it, it, even dorothy says somewhere that if if they were cut off completely there's no prospect of any money at all then she probably wouldn't feel able to go ahead with this marriage with william even though she loves him oh, so the, the, the thought of sinking into destitution i mean she's got no skills mm. What would they do? And she's sharp-eyed, realistic. So So, so even this romantic character has actually got quite a hard head at the same time. And they have, as far as one can tell, a pretty happy marriage.
1: Her father's will leaves her a dowry, but her brothers won't give it to her because she didn't obey. Mm -hmm. The battle commences.
3: There's then a great bust up over money. As soon as they're married, they send a letter to Henry saying, please, can you send the papers? the dowry that the father had promised. So there's a big legal battle over oh. it. it. Really stormy, as you'd expect. Mm. <laughs> um, but it, it's eventually sorted out. She and Henry they go their separate ways. There is a big breach.
1: And here her story takes an interesting turn. She and William, her husband, are sent abroad as diplomats. They go to various places, but the really big role that they played was in the Netherlands. He's the ambassador to the Netherlands. Oh. And their role there will be um, kind of earth-shaking. They facilitated the first-ever husband-wife partnership, being somewhat democratically selected for the throne of England.
3: Ooh! He becomes a diplomat. Uh, he becomes a diplomat in the Netherlands. He writes a book about Dutch society, which is very good actually observations on Holland and so oh. on. Um, and he and, and she together play some role in negotiating a, a royal marriage between the Dutch prince William of Orange and an English princess Mary, who eventually become King William III and Queen Mary II of England. It's the only joint sovereign king and queen partnership in English history.
2: They
1: were invited to be the monarchs of England through Dorothy and William Osborne. Mary and Dorothy were like best buddies. Wow. The parliament invited William and Mary to come in a bloodless, somewhat peaceful coup to take the throne of England.
2: You know, but so, when I was back when I was like 13 and completely obsessed with the British monarchy and the history uh-huh. of the British monarchy, I don't know if you remember. When oh, yeah. Everybody my, has that phase, I'm yeah. sure. Well, when our our shared room was like covered with pictures of royal family. Of, oh, yeah. Of yeah, tutors and things instead of animals. Uh-huh. I always wondered how that one happened.
1: Yeah. They just come out of the blue and it's weird.
2: I had memorized the whole list and I was like, what? How do these people show up? And why is there two of them? Why didn't they just yeah, pick one?
1: How come this one has to be William and Mary? Yeah, and is that just them saying just them? We're a team. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's that's the way I want to present it. Yes. <laughs> or at least what I see is some seed of gender equality. Yeah. Let's have a pair become rulers together. Wow. There are more political aspects to it. Like Mary had the blood claim, William had the clout and the support and oh, the yeah. power. And so together I I they were that. kind of like the perfect duo. Right. Dorothy and William Temple were bold and Powerful and successful together. Oh!
3: they eventually come back to England, yeah. He sort of retires from diplomacy and then they live in an estate in England. Uh, And they live to a decent old age, which is nice.
2: And did Henry die alone and miserable and bitter? I hope so.
3: (laughs) No, I don't hope so. Well,
2: part of that is right.
3: And there's some sort of reconciliation later on, we don't know how much. But the brother never married. This really was a really close bond, and, and perhaps he could never really disentangle himself from Dorothy. But also, he's not the older brother. It's his much, his, the oldest brother is the one who's inherited the title and the estate. So he's not all, all that rich, mm. which is why he'd been hoping that Dorothy would find a really rich husband that he oh, could then right. live off yeah. for the rest of his days.
1: Sibling relationships are powerful. <laughs> But I can't quite put my finger on what they are, you know? Like, in the big picture, what does it mean to be a sibling? She asks her
2: sibling. (laughs) (laughs) I think about this a lot, actually, because I think our family is unusual on many levels. In -hmm. that we all really get along really well. But we're also not... We're all so different from each other. (laughs) So, like, I feel like I have friends whose siblings... Hate each other, mm-hmm. and I have friends whose siblings are like glued to each other, best friends. Yeah, yeah, like they're they're the people who call each other every day, and and yeah, really, I really have this like friend, really tight friend relationship. Yeah, and we're neither of those. Like our right. family is is right. What is it? Deeply <laughs> committed to each other and like supportive of each other, and we really really like each other, but we're also really independent of each other. Yeah like you said, because there's such a variety in
1: sibling relationships that range from toxic to absolute inseparable best buddies, Mm -hmm. I've I've been wondering if if there's anything you can say in general about siblings. Jeffrey Kluger just wrote a book on the science of siblings or what sibling relationships are
2: Hmm, or
1: how they shape us. And he made a point which never occurred to me. I was trying to figure out, what is it to be a sibling? Like, what, what does it mean? And he said, maybe, like, the one thing we can say about sibling relationships is, it's the longest relationship you're going to have in your life. Mm, that's true. And I had never thought of that before. Because your parents will die. Yeah, your parents will die. You met your spouse later in life. They may or may not stick around. Wow, that your sibling will be yeah. your longest relationship. Do you remember at Christmas time we had one chocolate advent calendar, and we had to take turns. And there's six kids in the family, so every sixth day, yeah, you get the chocolate, and
2: then we rotate through all yep. the kids. But all that chocolate tasted so good. And you learn how to keep very clear records. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But
1: sibling relationships are also so famous for rivalry. Yeah. You're right? That you're in competition, your whole upbringing, even as children, you're competing for your parents' attention and yep. approval and things like that. So it's the ultimate frenemy. Yeah. They, you have all these shared experiences, and you have this long history of frequent, almost constant, emotionally intense interactions. Yeah. Here's a little excerpt from Professor Cap's book. Uh, just the opening of Chapter One: The Experience of Childhood. Sibling relationships in childhood have always been characterized by close bonds and fierce rivalries, reflecting individual temperament, age difference, competition, and parental favoritism. But equally important is the context of time and place, gendered assumptions and conventions on the upbringing and value of boys and girls, and the behavior deemed appropriate for each. Significant, too, are the parents' social and economic circumstances. Family dynamics in the early modern period can appear both startlingly familiar and very alien to our own. Professor Capp's new book is called The Ties That Bind, Siblings, Family, and Society in Early Modern England, and it's out just now in the UK by Oxford University Press, and it will be released in the US in November. The book is dedicated to the memory of Bernard Cap's brother, who passed just as he finished the book.
3: OK, so the book I've just finished is on sibling relationships. and It's called The Ties That Bind. And there's a subtitle, um, family, Siblings. Oh, I can't remember what it's called. <laughs> what is the subtitle? It's got a subtitle somewhere. <laughs> Siblings, family, and society in early modern England.
1: Very special thanks to Bernard Cap. And a heartfelt congratulations on 50 years at Warwick this October. Music for this episode was recorded by Mark Nelson and Philip Serna, who heads the great nonprofit VialsInOurSchools.org, aiming to bring early music to the general public. Dorothy Osborne's letter was read by Anna Simone, who, with many others, recorded the whole collection of letters for LibriVox.org. We are so grateful to all of our contributors and to our sponsors, listeners like you who went to our website and clicked on Donate. You can become a monthly sponsor and get stuff like our What's Her Name cross-stitch patterns, where you can stitch every woman featured in our episodes, or What's Her Name trading cards that help you remember and show off all the women you've learned about on our podcast. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith, and What's Her Name is produced by Katie Nelson and Olivia Mickle. Thank you for listening.